Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about how to be happier. And our guest expert, a self-described performance junkie, is Dr. David Jockers, who has written a brand new book, Supercharge Your Brain, the complete guide to radically improve your mind, your mood, your memory, your mindset. Now, it also has a companion book, Supercharge Recipes, so get ready to hear some brain-boosting recipes as well. Dr. Jockers, welcome. Rena, so great to be on with you. So we are, by the way, um, I gave a very abbreviated intro to you because we're going to incorporate a link with all your amazing background and the details of how to contact you in our show notes. But let's start with what inspired you to write this new book? Yeah, so basically growing up, I mean, I've always been into health and performance, but I just never really knew how to take care of my health. And so like most people out there, I was doing things on a daily basis that were actually damaging my body. And, um, you know, and so I just decided, hey, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to learn whatever I have to learn in order to be the best version of myself. And so I just researched and studied these different types of strategies, how to move my body, how to fuel my body, things I was doing on a daily basis that were damaging my brain, and um, just took inventory of all of that. And so basically through that process, I went ahead and I I turned all of that into a book. And I said, you know, this is what I've learned through the course of trying to improve my own health and uh, and created this book, Supercharge Your Brain. So let's start with what causes damage to the brain or or major stressors. And of course, when, when I'm talking about stressors, I mean things that create that brain fog or create a bad mood or create depression or create problems with our memory, what are those major stressors that we should be cognizant of? Yeah, there's a lot of stressors. And when we think about the brain, I mean, really, to go back to even your original question, the brain is really how we experience all of life. So ultimately, what's the difference between somebody that's living and somebody that's dead? It's really the functioning of the brain, right? So if the brain is firing and the neurological systems are firing, we're going to have all of our senses heightened and we're going to be able to experience what we know of as life. And so with that, there's things that we can do every day to improve our brain. There's things that we can do and most people are doing every day to affect and negatively impact the way the brain functions and our ultimate experience of life. And so one big thing from a nutrition perspective is blood sugar imbalances. So most people are going around with their sugar going up and down. And the brain really depends. It can run off of two fuels. One is sugar or glucose. The other is ketones or ketone bodies, which are basically a product of fat metabolism. And so when we are solely dependent on sugar, it's very hard to maintain stability um, with our blood sugar. And therefore, when the sugar goes way up, it promotes inflammation in the brain. When the sugar levels drop, and we've all probably experienced that, we have hypoglycemia, that's when we can develop, you know, in a sense, more irritability, hunger cravings. We've heard the term hangry before. And that's, um, that's basically something that 
that ends up developing when our, when our blood sugar goes down. And so most people are cycling between periods of high blood sugar and low blood sugar. And so because of that, they're actually creating a lot of damage to their brain. And so one big thing is getting your blood sugar stable and creating an alternative fuel source, these ketone bodies, is one um, powerful strategy to help stabilize brain function and, and to help really dramatically improve your mood, your memory, and your mindset. So nutrition-wise, you want to really focus on good fats, antioxidants. So good fats are going to be things like avocados, grass-fed butter, um, coconut oil and coconut products. Uh, we're also looking at things like olives and olive oil. So just good fats in general are so critical. We want to make those the foundation of our diet. Lots of antioxidants from non-starchy vegetables. Um, herbs are a really key part of basically having a, a healthy brain, you know, using a lot of things like rosemary, oregano, basil, thyme, things that smell good and taste good. They're so good for the digestive system, but also really, really good for brain function. And uh, clean protein, so grass-fed organic animal products, that's extremely critical. Our typical conventional animal products are just loaded with hormones, antibiotics, lots of different things that are going to impact our brain in a negative manner. So we want to stay away from those. We want to really stick with organic, grass-fed, pasture-raised. That's what we're looking for when it comes to animal products. So this is important to go from a, fat, from a sugar burner to a fat burner or somebody that's what we call keto-adapted using these ketones. And, and when I say keto, it's, it's basically the same thing as fat. Your body's breaking down fat. So that's, that's a really, really big thing. You know, another big thing is drinking a lot of tap water, for example. I mean, I, years ago, I was a personal trainer. And, I, and as a personal trainer, I was living a healthier lifestyle than anybody I knew, yet I struggled with brain fog on a daily basis. Um, if I had gone to a doctor, I'm sure they would have diagnosed me with ADHD. And when I looked, I took inventory of my, of my, just my general lifestyle. I was drinking a ton of tap water. I didn't understand the importance of filtered water, but typical tap water is low to a chlorine. Chlorine disinfects the water, so it's necessary for preventing infection. Unfortunately, it also damages our gut because our gut is loaded with microbes. Many of them are sensitive to chlorine. So when we drink tap water, we're actually damaging our microbiome, our, our natural gut flora, and we're going to end up with an overgrowth of things that are resistant to chlorine. That would be like yeast, for example. Um, and so we can have a candida or yeast overgrowth, which is something I was dealing with back in my, my teens and, and early 20s when I was experiencing this sort of brain fog. And, and when we look at yeast, which is very common when people are consuming um, a, high, a higher carbohydrate diet, as well as drinking mm -hmm. tap water or using antibiotics or using different medications, all these things help promote the overgrowth of yeast. And yeast releases acetaldehyde, which can make you feel like you are drunk, for example, right? So it's a mm -hmm. form of an alcohol to make you feel drunk. They also release gliotoxins, which damage the um, and create inflammation because you have glial cells in your brain, which are immune cells that um, when, uh, when they get triggered, they're going to promote more inflammation in the brain. So yeast will, will promote that. And so drinking chlorinated water, um, doing different medications, eating conventional meat products, if they've got antibiotics in the feed, that's going to promote an overgrowth of candida or yeast, um, as well as bad bacteria too that, um, that are resistant. And that can well, definitely affect brain function. So those are just a couple things to start. And, and there's so many other things that, and I, I go through that in the book, things that people are doing, and in fact, health-conscious people. 
So not just, you know, mm-hmm. anybody out there, but health conscious people are doing on a regular basis that are damaging their brain. You know, especially with the new exciting research on the whole brain-gut function, I'm really delighted to hear you talk about the importance of keeping your gut clean in order to have a clear mind. What do you think of kombucha? That's been coming up a lot lately in terms of some uh, well-known doctors have come out and said, well, I don't necessarily recommend a lot of kombucha because it can create an excessive overgrowth of yeast or candida versus others who say, no, it's fine. Where do you come out on this? Yeah, it's a great question. So kombucha is basically fermented. Uh, it's fermented tea, and so basically they they do they put sugar in it's a herbal tea, and uh, and it's basically this uh, this pancake type mushroom that is a fermented. They call it a scoby. So it's a symbiotic colony of um, bacteria and yeast, basically. And that's what SCOBY means, symbiotic colony mm-hmm. of bacteria and yeast. And it's just basically um, consuming the sugar and then it produces enzymes, B vitamins. So the microorganisms are producing these. They eat the sugar, they produce B vitamins, enzymes, and organic acids. And so in general, the organic acids, the enzymes, as well as the, uh, the B vitamins are, are very healthy for the body. They promote a healthy environment in the microbiome. Now, the downside is, yes, they, there's a lot of bacteria. There's a lot of yeast that we're consuming with that. And so in general, there's also sugar in there as well. So mm-hmm. in general, when it comes to things like kombucha, I say start very small and you want to find your tolerance point. You know, it's one of those things where when it comes to fermented food, it's not just eat as much as you can because it's all good. It's all healthy. It's not necessarily the case. You kind of want to find your tolerance point because you are introducing bacteria and yeast and different microorganisms in your system. And a lot of times there's wild strains that could be, it could have a negative impact on your health. So personally, what I've, uh, one uh, drink that I actually prefer is a coconut water keeper, um, one that's called Kavita, which you can find out on the, uh, at mm-hmm. typical grocery stores, at least in the I US love Kavita. Yeah, Kavita is great. And I found that based on the starter, starting agents that they use, some of the bacteria that they're using in the starting as a starter, it tends to have less wild strains and a better impact on the microbiome. It's also typically lower sugar than most uh, kombuchas as well. So again, though, with fermented drinks like that, you want to start small. I mean, I'll have people start with as little as a teaspoon and just start Mm. small and gradually work your way up until you feel good. Naturally, you should feel very good. You should have normal bowel activity. Um, You know, you should really be moving your bowels two, sometimes three times a day, depending on how much you eat Um, and good, well-formed bowel, bowel activity. Um, You shouldn't notice excessive itching and different things like that. And so some people, when they're taking in too much, fermented foods, they'll know that they'll have more of a histamine type response where they may have right. small little hives that pop up, increased itching, brain fog, uh, sometimes allergy-like symptoms and things like that. So these are things you would be looking out for that, um, you know, if you're consuming a lot of fermented foods, you started to notice that an increase in that, you'd want to back down. So I think with, com- with kombucha, there's a lot of people who've had their health benefited from it, and there's other people who 
you know, basically just their, their body wasn't ready to take on the amount that they consumed. But I think in general, as a general recommendation, small amounts of that can be very helpful. That is really good information because I feel like we live in a society of fads. And so the uh, moment there was a new superfood, I mean, remember kale, like people were juicing kale mm-hmm. for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we we seem to go from one obsessive fad to another. And I think kombucha is the newest, latest fad. And I really appreciate you sharing that, hey, there are symptoms when you go a little overboard and here are the symptoms. And if, if you are experiencing these, then, then back down. Um, I'll give you an example. I know someone who's drinking two kombuchas a day. She claims she's addicted to them. Of course, it's sugar and fizzy. It's, it's similar yeah. to getting addicted to a Diet Coke, right? Right. So, so I think it is important to, to keep aware that, again, don't overdo even if it's a good thing. There, there is something called too much of a good thing. So that's, that's really good information, and I love Kavita. Kavita is fabulous. Let's talk memory. So as we get older, and especially my listener base, you know, we're over 30, you start to notice that your, your recall, whether it's short-term or long-term, is just not as, as great as it used to be. And, of course, that continues to decline. What causes that? And then what have you found as the one or two top remedies for someone that's listening to this podcast and going, I, I just need to get a boost to my memory. Yeah. So basically it was part of the brain called the hippocampus. It's in the temporal lobe, which is kind of like the side of your brain, for example. So your left and your right side, um, that's going to be where you store your memories. short and long-term memories get stored out there. And so we want to really support those regions And so there's certain nutrients that are really critical for helping support those. And in general, there's an overall environment that we, that we want to use in order to help maintain a healthy brain function, healthy temporal lobe. So what we know is that that region is very, very responsive to blood sugar imbalances. Like I was talking about before. In fact, they call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes. What they mean by that is it's characterized by the same pathology that diabetes is is characterized, which is insulin resistance. And insulin is this superhero hormone. Its job is to take sugar out of the bloodstream and put it into the cells. We know that when sugar is elevated in your bloodstream for a long period of time, it's neurotoxic. Like somebody that's diabetic and they have uncontrolled diabetes, they're going to end up having things like peripheral neuropathy where the nerve endings, for example, going out to their hands and their feet will become destroyed. And they they oftentimes won't even feel their feet or they'll have chronic pain, burning and tingling in uh, in the distal extremities. Also, they can develop things like optic neuritis where they actually go blind because the nerves going into the help control vision become destroyed because of the sugar. So basically when sugar bind, when sugar is elevated in the bloodstream, it binds to protein molecules or enzymes and it creates something called an advanced glycolytic enzyme. So if we break that down, advanced starts with the A, glycolytic starts with the G, enzyme starts with the E, A-G-E. So Rena, what do you think that does to the body? Mm. It ages, ages. Us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's particularly damaging to neurological tissue, and that includes not only the peripheral nerves, like we've been talking about, but also the brain mm-hmm. tissue itself. 
And so with Alzheimer's disease, the brain is chewed up. With dementia, the brain is chewed up and atrophied as well. And so one of the big keys is we've got to make sure that we're keeping our blood sugar stable. And one of the best strategies is to help create an alternative fuel source that our brain can use, which is called ketones. And starting to elevate ketones in our bloodstream will help to get more balance and stability with our blood sugar and, and promote what we call insulin sensitivity, where insulin, this hormone that takes sugar out of the bloodstream, so it helps prevent advanced glycolytic enzymes, these AGEs, by taking sugar out of the bloodstream and putting into the cells. The problem is when we constantly are elevating our blood sugar, we're going to get constant elevations in insulin. And mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, if, if, you know, if my neighbor came over and was knocking on my door or if they were, you know, mowing the lawn and we've all been there where they're mowing the lawn, uh, you know, your neighbor's mowing the lawn. And it's like at first it's really, really annoying. But if they just continued to mow the lawn, you would become habituated to it. You wouldn't even really notice right. the sound of it anymore. Okay. And so that's kind of what happens in the cells. They become less sensitive to insulin. So now our body needs to keep pr- producing more and more and more insulin. And we're struggling to get sugar out of the bloodstream and into the cells. Well, this happens in the brain and it promotes inflammation and what we call reactive oxygen species, ROS. And that can be extremely damaging to neurological tissues. We're actually damaging these tish- the, the tissue and um, just creating massive amount of, um, you know, basically just, just destroying our brain. And so keeping our blood sugar balanced and helping to promote the formation of ketones, this alternative fuel source, is one of the best things that we can be doing to help prevent against that. Okay. On top of that, there's another principle when it comes to our brain, and that is, use it or lose it, right? And so basically, we need to be using it on a regular basis. And so we need to be really trying to challenge our memory on a regular basis. Like, for example, learning shouldn't stop when we, you know, leave school. We need to be challenging our ability to learn and remember throughout the course of life. So reading books, taking part in, you know, even if it's simple things like crossword puzzles or playing games, um, you know, with our, our friends or with our family members. These are all important parts. I know for myself, I love ping pong. Ping pong, believe it or not, that eye-hand coordination is mm-hmm. so important for the brain. Movement itself is extremely critical for the brain. Movement, there's a, a key nutrient that most people don't talk about because we're, we're, you know, we're thinking about nutrients. We're thinking about food-based nutrients, but there's a movement-based nutri- uh, nutrient called proprioception, and it's basically – um, movement information. So when we, I move my hands, there's stimuli, there's, a, there's a, a neurological signal that travels from my hands up to my brain telling my hand or telling my brain where my hand is in space and correcting the motion to try to optimize the motion. This is going on on a regular basis. So if we're living a sedentary life or if we're not challenging ourselves with new movement behaviors, new movement activities, then we're going to end up causing more atrophy in the brain. And there's something called neurobics, where it's actually basically aerobics for your brain. And aerobics for your brain are, you know, one, one particular characteristic of neurobic exercises is that they're new and novel. So mm-hmm. they're novel exercises, meaning that they're, they're things you don't normally do. And that could be like, for example, combing your hair with your non-dominant hand or brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hands. 
That could be a new movement. It may be smelling a flower you haven't smelled before, right? You're using different senses and getting different stimuli um, that create activation in your brain. Okay, so if you're not somebody, if you're somebody that doesn't take time to, to quote unquote smell the roses on a regular basis, and then you take time one day to smell the roses, that's a powerful stimuli for your brain. So really? you know you can do it with movement. You can do it with taste, right? Tasting different types of foods. All of our major senses have a have a huge impact on the brain. So whether it's movement, kinesthetic movement, um, whether it's smell, whether it's taste whether it's hearing something new. In fact, um, in the book, I talk a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci, you know, there, and there's a great book that's, that's called um, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. And one of the things that he would do is he would take time on a regular basis and he would focus on one sense, right? So he would focus on how to smell, like what he was smelling out in his environment, what he was hearing out in his environment. So he would just focus on that one sense for, let's say, five or ten minutes. And then, you know, he might journal about it or something along those lines to just kind of remember and take it all in. Now, we think about Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he was what we call a a Renaissance man. So he had Mm -hmm. so many different gifts and talents. He was a sculptor, a painter, a philosopher. He was um, an inventor, right? So he did all these things. And one reason why is because of this regular practice of focusing on all these senses, it enhanced all the little gaps in his brain, these little gaps called synapses, where the neurological connections intersect. And so he created just a much more flexible and enhanced brain by doing that. And they even studied Einstein's brain at Stanford. So they never had a chance to do an autopsy on Da Vinci's brain, of course. But, you know, when we think about a modern you know, a genius of the 20th, 20th century, we think of somebody like Einstein. And mm-hmm. so at Stanford, they looked at his brain and they wanted to see what was different between his brain and somebody else that was his age, you know, when he passed away and, um, and you know, his age and, uh, you know, similar brain structure, similar uh, brain volume. And they thought that he would have more neurons. And what they found was that he had exactly the same amount of actual ner- neurons, which are called, which are nerve cells, but he had twice as many of these gaps between the nerve cells. Hmm. These are called synapses. And what this demonstrated was a remarkable level of flexibility, neurological flexibility, where he was able to link very, very complex thoughts because of that dynamic level of flexibility in his brain. And so we can presuppose that uh, somebody like a da Vinci had, had a similar brain makeup and doing practices like this, like Einstein was known to pace back and forth when he would be thinking about thoughts. And so movement in general um, mm-hmm. is amazing for the brain. And so just walking in general is a great for the brain. And he would play little games and, and whatnot. And so he was, he was engaging in neurobics without really right. knowing it. He just felt like he functioned better when he would do those things. It almost sounds like go back to being a child and go back to doing things, yeah. as many new things as possible because I think what happens is you know you get to your mid-30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, and the number of new experiences pretty much com- goes down to minimal. And in addition to that, your movement calms down. You're, you're really not moving as much and you're in a routine. So what I'm hearing you say is get out of that routine, be a young child again, 
So maybe try new foods, try new music, try new movement. By the way, I swear by you, Jam, for all those out there listening going, how do I incorporate new movement? Check out UJAM classes in your neighborhood. It's, it's dancing. It's new dance moves to great songs um, taught in an intermittent um, high or high-intensity movement. It's pretty phenomenal. It's a lot of fun. You definitely get to do a lot of movement with your arms and legs and neck and abs that you've never done before. But that's what it sounds like, right? You're saying, go be a child again. Do things you've never done before. Rena, that's exactly it. I mean, you really nailed it on, on the on the head with that. It's really being a child. You know, children, I have two 18-month-olds, and uh, so I have twin boys. And the first two years of life, the brain is growing at a level. I mean, it is growing. We, we develop most of our brain really the first six years of our life, most of the actual volume of it. And so in comparison to the rest of the body, the brain grows so fast. Um, and so basically, what are, what are children doing? They're constantly moving. In fact, one of the worst things you can do for a child is stop it from crawling, right? Crawling, the actual act of crawling, like they used to put children in walkers because the idea was, hey, let's have, you know, the faster the child walks, the more, quote, unquote, intelligent or advanced the child is. But actually, we know that that's not true. Crawling itself helps link the two hemispheres of the brain, the left and right hemisphere. So the act of crawling is key. In fact, as an adult, doing cross-crawl activities or activities um, across our body is so powerful for linking our, le- our right and left brain and helping us to balance and create more metabolic flexibility in our brain. Um, and so, yeah, being, uh, being a child and, and you know, my, my, babe, my uh, little boys, I mean, they're climbing up on stuff. They are mm-hmm. grabbing new toys. You know, they play with a toy for, for three minutes, and then they're on to the next toy. And they want to put their hands on everything. They want to put everything in their mouth. <laughs> they just want yeah. to experience the world. They want to, you know, they want that stimuli. And that's because that's helping to develop their brain. And so you're right, just having that childlike um, curiosity and uh, just almost like a childlike spirit and going about and, um, you know, not being scared. And I think somewhere along the lines, we develop, I mean, there's a healthy fear, and oftentimes we develop an unhealthy fear in life where um, maybe we've had a bad experience or somebody, maybe a parent or some authority figure told us what we could or couldn't do. And so through that, we develop these limited beliefs, and um, we basically have put ourselves in in a certain level of a box that our childlike self would climb right out of. So true. So true. Let's talk supplements. So you've given some great insights into how to naturally do activities to, to grow those, those gaps and to be creative. What about actual supplements? GPC yeah. is a formula that I've used, and I yeah. swear it works. It could be placebo effect, but either way, it absolutely works. What do you think of GPC, and what other supplements do you recommend? Yeah, so basically, I would say to start with a foundation for for brain, I would say the top three supplements that somebody could take to improve their brain would be vitamin D. Okay, most people in society, over 90%, are chronically deficient in vitamin D, and vitamin D plays a role in over 2,000 genes in our genome. We only have 44,000 genes, so it plays a huge role in just the genetic expression of our body and a really critical role in synapse development. We're talking about those gaps 
um, something called neurogenesis and our, our brain's ability to produce a compound called brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, which helps stimulate the growth of nerves and, and uh, these little gaps called synapses. So vitamin D is so critical for that. And so if mom is deficient in vitamin D, gives birth to a child that's deficient in vitamin D, or when she's carrying the baby as, in, as a fetus and she's deficient in vitamin D, the baby's already going to start out with um, a brain that's not developing optimally. Okay, so vitamin D is so critical. And fortunately, the good news is this, is that even if you've been deficient your whole life, you can see dramatic improvement in your brain function by getting, by optimizing your vitamin D levels. And so mm-hmm. definitely vitamin D, I would say number one, and, and really optimal levels are going to be between 60 nanograms per milliliter and 100 nanograms per milliliter. And that's, that's big because, uh, you know, a lot of my clients will say, well, I had my vitamin D tested and the doctor said it was normal. And in the medical model, they, what they look at is basically um, a level that's just above developing rickets. You know, rickets is a, a bone disease that's associated with vitamin D deficiency. And so once you're beyond the level that um, you would develop rickets, they say you're fine, okay? But there's mm-hmm. a big difference between not developing rickets and being at your optimal level. And so what we want is obviously to be at our optimal level. So the medical system, if you're over 30 nanograms per milliliter, they're going to say, hey, your vitamin D is good. You don't need a supplement or anything like that. Again, I said 60 to 100 is where I'm looking at. And so, again, big difference right there. And so I would definitely start with vitamin D. Um, and, and you get that from the sun, of course, as, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the main way that our ancestors were getting it, and they were, weren't supplementing with it. They, were, they may have been eating organ meats like uh, liver from a grass-fed cow that's rich in, in vitamin D. But um, in reality, they were probably getting most. And, and you think about the, the tribes that or the people groups that would consume liver, right? For example, um, the Eskimos were, would consume a lot of animal liver and organ meats and things like that. You know, they're in an area where vitamin D was, you know, they're less able to get vitamin D because of the, the, the low level of sun exposure and UV light. Uh, UV ray exposure. Meanwhile, most other cultures, especially as they were getting closer to the equator, were getting a lot of it from the sun. So if you have fair skin, getting out in the sun on a regular basis and getting a good majority of your body exposed to sun to where it creates a, a mild tan is a phenomenal way to improve your vitamin D. But what I found is that most people really need some level of vitamin D supplementation. So my typical rule is 1,000 international units per 25 pounds of body weight. So somebody like myself, I'm about 165 pounds. Ideally for me, along with getting sun exposure, it'd be good for me to supplement with about 6,000 to maybe up to 7,000 international units on a, on a regular basis. So vitamin D is so critical. Um, number two would be omega-3 fatty acids. So getting good, high-quality omega-3s just so important for healthy brain function. They play a huge role in the overall development of the brain, development of the synapses, the neurotransmitter function. And so most people, again, are deficient in good quality omega-3s because they've been eating a standard American diet and they've been eating a lot of conventional animal products and not the grass-fed animal products. So taking a good high-quality fish oil that's molecularly distilled, purified, I should say like third-party tested on it to make sure it doesn't have impurities in it, um, I would say that would be number two. And then number three, and this is actually the supplement that I see the biggest um, 
subjective results with. The biggest change when people say immediately, like, wow, I noticed a big difference when I took this, is magnesium. Magnesium just plays such a key role in brain function. In particular, it helps, it's almost, it's basically like an adaptogenic herb practically, where it helps basically, helps to keep our neurotransmitters, our excitatory neurotransmitters that excite activity in our brain, and our inhibitory neurotransmitters that help relax and calm our brain, it helps create the right balance. And so if you're taking a good form of magnesium, um, in fact, there's the best form, in my opinion, is called magnesium L-threonate, okay? And uh, I have a product called Brain Calm Magnesium that I use with this. If you're taking the right type of magnesium, what it's going to do is it's going to give you energy and better cognitive uh, enhancement during the day. So you're going to have better cognitive acceleration. You're going to be able to think sharply and quickly. You're going to have better memory recall. You're going to be less affected by stress, right? Less likely to be overwhelmed and have anxiety. And then in the evening, it's going to help calm you, relax you, and help you fall asleep and get a really, really good, deep, restorative sleep at night. Magnesium, anytime our blood sugar is off, we're going to drain our magnesium stores. Anytime we're under stress, we're draining our magnesium stores. Magnesium is to the brain what oil is to a car. We're constantly using it. We need it for all cellular energy production. And most people are just not getting enough magnesium from their diet. So taking a magnesium supplement can have a huge impact. So those would be the three foundational supplements. Beyond that, uh, you know, if somebody's not seeing results, they can use things, you know, certain amino acids, for example, and uh, something called nootropics, which is basically specific amino acids designed to help elevate unique neurotransmitters in the brain. Uh, so can we not get some of these supplements through food? And if yes, while we can't get enough, what are the top sources of, of food for magnesium, as an example? Yeah. So magnesium, you definitely you want to eat a magnesium-rich diet. Some of the best food sources of magnesium are dark green leafy vegetables. Those are all really, really good as far as magnesium goes. In fact, chlorophyll, which is the major compound that obviously makes the uh, vegetable green, um, mm -hmm. is very similar to our blood cell called hemoglobin. Uh, or within our red blood cell called hemoglobin. The only difference is that hemoglobin has iron, okay, and chlorophyll has magnesium, okay? And, and basically chlorophyll is what takes light energy along with water and produces energy for the plant. So magnesium is a key player in that. Stark green leafy vegetables are a great source. Also avocados are a fantastic source of magnesium. Okay. Um, you can also do, do um, good quality salts. I, I'm a huge fan of doing... Things like Himalayan sea salt, which is a good source of magnesium. Pumpkin seeds, particularly sprouted seeds, good source of magnesium. Um, raw chocolate is a good source of magnesium. And uh, ultimately, the standard American diet's number one source of magnesium, believe it or not, is actually coffee. Coffee is actually a good source of magnesium as is well. Right? Now, yeah, the only issue is, again, when we have blood sugar imbalances, we actually need more magnesium. Okay, because we're draining magnesium. And when we consume caffeine, so coffee, even though it has caffeine, same thing with chocolate, because of their stimulants, they're actually going to also accelerate the usage of magnesium in our system. So they kind of block, you know, in a sense, cancels itself out. But I would say the best pure source would be your dark green leafy vegetables and then things like avocados 
and sprouted pumpkin seeds, um, soaked uh, nuts and, and seeds in general that are soaked to take out the phytic acids. Those are good sources mm-hmm. of magnesium. And do these green leafy vegetables have to be eaten raw or we can cook them and, and magnesium will be fine? Yeah, so I would say the, the more raw they are, the more, the better we're going to uptake the magnesium. The more we cook okay. it, the more we're going to process that out. So, yeah, you want them not processed. Okay, now with like cruciferous vegetables, because those are, they have a really hard outer membrane, like broccoli, mm-hmm. for example, eating raw broccoli can be really challenging on your digestive system. I don't recommend it. I would lightly steam it. You want to steam it to where it's soft, obviously not mush, not completely mushy, but where it's soft. And then, you know, cruciferous vegetables are a great source. They're, they're like a great agent to put grass-fed butter on. They're a great carrier for it. So I love melting grass-fed butter or ghee on the, um, on the cruciferous vegetables when they're steamed. And grass-fed butter is a great source of magnesium as well. It's also a really good source of omega-3 fatty acids. It's one of the best sources of vitamin D, although it's not going to supply the amount of vitamin D you really need. Um, it's still a good source. It's also very rich in vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin K2, um, something called phosphatidylserine and phosphatidylcholine, which are really critical for the types of neurotransmitters that help you with memory. There's a type of neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, and one of the backbones of that is this choline molecule that you can find in grass-fed butter as well as egg yolk, um, mm-hmm. particularly from, from, a gra- from a pasture-raised chicken. So getting grass-fed butter is awesome. And so doing steamed veggies, whether it's broccoli or cauliflower or something along those lines, and um, putting grass-fed, melting grass-fed butter on it and then putting a lot of herbs on everything, that's a really, really healthy type of meal for, for good brain, for good, healthy brain. So you're getting those fats, you're getting the antioxidants, you're getting the magnesium, you're getting that chlorophyll, right? Really, really good for, for brain function. So you know I'm going to ask you about recipes now that we've been talking about, some, some yummy veggies. Share with us your favorite brain-boosting recipe that you take on a regular basis. Yeah, I would say my favorite, one of my favorite foods in general is my supercharged chocolate pudding. And so my chocolate pudding, what I do, and I'm a big fan of doing a lot of liquid nutrition, particularly at my more stressful times of the day, because mm-hmm. it's easy in the digestive system, right? My digestive system mm-hmm. doesn't have to work because it's the blender's already done the work. So what I do is mm-hmm. I'll take coconut milk. So coconut fats are incredible for the brain. I put avocado in there, which makes it more like a pudding. And avocado is loaded with potassium, magnesium, carotenoid, antioxidants, just so good. And it's also a great source of fiber as well, avocados are. So I put that in there. I will put um, a good high-quality protein powder I'm using, I have a protein powder called bone broth protein, which is great for the gut, provides collagen protein, um, and it's flavored with, ch- with stevia, and there's a chocolate-flavored bone broth protein that I'm using. So I put that in there, and um, if I need extra raw chocolate to make it just a darker chocolate, I can do that. I use raw cacao and also some stevia if I want more flavoring in it. But basically, the basic ingredients are coconut milk, avocado, and bone broth protein, which actually has a really, really great flavor, real powerful flavor um, using stevia. So I put that in there, Mm. and then I'll also typically put in some extra coconut oil um, just for more good fats. 
and blend that up. And it comes out, again, so putting like texture to it and just tastes absolutely amazing. And it's so rich in good, healthy fats because of the coconut fats, the avocado fats. It's got high quality collagen protein, which is great for my joints, my gut, uh, my brain, really all, all parts of my body and uh, my skin, my hair. So I've got all of that in there and it, it satiates me, meaning that I feel satisfied. And this is a key part of really becoming a fat burner is mm-hmm. this is a very low carb meal. So it's low mm-hmm. in things that turn into sugar, but high in good fats. And so it helps my body to, when I start, when you start to eat like this on a regular basis, it helps your body to be able to upregulate enzymes that help your body convert fatty acids into ketones and utilize this powerful energy source called ketone, ketone bodies. And so you become keto adapted. And now you've got two fuel sources, ketones and sugar. So that helps keep your sugar levels stable, your blood sugar levels stable, which Mm -hmm. allows your body to basically reduce inflammation, to support um, healing tissues in in, in the system faster, whether it's the brain tissue, neurological tissue, uh, whether it's joints, the gut lining, whatever it is when you're in ketosis. So I consume meals like that on a regular basis in order to really just provide the, the kind of calories I need to, to uh, for all my metabolic functions, but a vast majority of them from fatty acids so I can be, be keto adapted. And it tastes Okay, awesome. I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a couple of questions for you. Now, do you take that for breakfast or do you take that as a pudding after a meal? Yeah, so for a lot of my clients, I'll have them do that for breakfast. For me personally, I actually... Like right now, it's almost two o'clock Eastern time here where I'm at. Where we're doing this interview, and I haven't actually eaten anything yet today. All I've oh, done wow. is drink a ton of water. And I do. I practice something called intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting actually is one of the most powerful things you can do to help your body heal faster. So while I'm fasting, my insulin levels are really low, and my body is secreting more growth hormone. And growth hormone is really key for a healthy immune system, very key for helping to heal and regenerate the gut lining, joints, skin, hair. You know, they call it the quintessential anti-aging hormone, human growth hormone. And it elevates significantly when you're doing this sort of a fast. And so I will typically have this meal for lunch. And I I will usually eat my meals. So I I practice intermittent fasting daily because I feel the best when I do it. Um, and I consume my meals usually between a four to eight hour eating window. So what does that mean? That means that like today, I'll probably have this sort of a, uh, this pudding around 2.30. And then I will probably finish all my food. I'll, I'll eat dinner probably around 5.30. It's typically when my family will meet dinner. And so I'll be done eating by 6, 6.30. And so I'll eat two meals in a four hour eating window. Okay, so it's called my building window. And then my body has, has had basically 20 hours for cleansing and regenerating. And so this is so powerful. And our ancestors would have feast and famine cycles. When food was abundant, they ate really well. But food wasn't always abundant. They didn't have pantries. They didn't have refrigerators. So they had a lot of times where they would go most of the day, if not multiple days, without food. And so the body is actually really good at fasting and that helps hmm. increase your body's adaptability and metabolic flexibility by doing this. Now, now that's, fast- the, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, please continue. Mm-hmm. Oh, when I'm fasting, I'm drinking a lot of water, and I'm actually doing minerals as well. So I like to do diluted broth. That's one of my favorite things to drink. I will buy some organic uh, free-range chicken broth, and it's not bone broth. It's just one from the store, just organic free-range chicken broth. has very low ca- low amount of calories overall, and I dilute it with hot water, and I love to drink that throughout the day. Sometimes I'll do a fat-burning coffee. I've got a recipe called turmeric fat-burning coffee. Turmeric is one of the most powerful antioxidants. And uh, my wife makes this coffee where we where she uses grass-fed butter, um, organic coffee, as well as MCT oil, which is a derivative of coconut oil that turns into ketones really, really fast. And she'll put turmeric and cinnamon in there too. And uh, the, the turmeric and cinnamon absorb well when they're combined with good fats. So I get the anti-inflammatory polyphenol compounds from the turmeric and the cinnamon. And at the same time, we've got the grass-fed butter and the um, MCT oil, which helps stimulate ketones. So that actually helps to mimic fasting, even though I'm taking in calories there, because it's, there's no carbs in it at all. It, uh, it, does, it mimics fasting, where it keeps insulin down, but at the same time helps my body produce these ketones for an alternative fuel source. So it's really good for the brain. So I'll do that sometimes in the morning, and I'll uh, always am drinking a lot of broth, a lot of diluted broth, because minerals are so underutilized. And especially when you're doing intermittent fasting, um, doing a lot of minerals is really, really key because when your body has low levels of insulin, okay, and we've been talking about that hormone, you don't retain minerals as well. So insulin retains water and minerals. It re- retains sodium. One of the reasons why you'll hear people talk about um, for blood pressure that people need to be on a low-sodium diet, okay, is really the reason why is it's not sodium that's a problem. There's only 3% of people with um, with hypertension or high blood pressure have a sodium-related hypertension. It's not sodium that's a problem. It's the high insulin because their blood sugar's off that's the problem. And when you have high insulin, you retain sodium. When your insulin goes down because you're on a lower-carbohydrate diet, you're going to need more sodium because your body's going to excrete more of it. And that will help keep you very mentally stable. I know for me, my energy goes down significantly, and I have more cravings and hunger, and I can't maintain uh, this keto adaptation if I'm not getting these minerals in. So staying well hydrated, really well hydrated, and getting the minerals, it, to me, is key. And you can, it can be as simple as just taking like a quarter teaspoon of Himalayan sea salt and putting that in like 32 ounces of water and drinking that throughout the morning. Okay, it can be as simple as that for, for people. So they don't necessarily have to use the broth, but I know for me that works great. Then usually for lunch, I am doing some sort of a uh, pudding or a smoothie like that. And today I had a high-intensity workout. I did strength training day, so I'm definitely going to do that. Some days, though, one day a week, I'll do a 24-hour fast where I'm just doing liquids, just water and liquids, no carbohydrate or significant amount of protein from dinner to dinner, okay? And that really helps my body to regenerate. And there's something called autophagy that's stimulated, this mechanism of autophagy. And autophagy basically helps to recycle old uh, decaying cells. And uh, diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for example, and Parkinson's disease, there's research out talking about how those diseases are characterized as the loss of autophagy, uh, meaning that 
the body started developing these abnormal cells in the brain because of oxidative stress and inflammation and never had the opportunity to recycle them, break them down and rebuild new cells. So they just became, you know, the, some of the main cells and then they started reproducing, but they had, they had DNA damage. And so now you've got all these abnormal mutated cells and they're replicating. And so what ends up happening, you end up with a pathological disease, right? So you end up with a disease process. So autophagy helps the body to eliminate abnormal cells. That's going to help reduce the risk of cancer. It's going to help reduce the risk of degenerative diseases, things like that. So my wife, for example, she doesn't do intermittent fasting like I do. She'll have a protein shake for breakfast, but she does one day a week where she'll skip the protein shake. She'll do a dinner-to-dinner fast and just stay hydrated during the day. And that's a day where she's not doing a workout. So you wouldn't want to fast for a long period of time and do a high-intensity mm-hmm. workout. You can go out and take walks. That's great. But um, not do some sort of strength training day on that day. That would not be helpful for your body. But having a rest day like that is really key. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of spiritual practices talk about fasting, okay? Like I'm a yes. Christian, and the Bible talks about having like a, a day of rest, okay? And so – um, he, you know, and in the Bible and Jesus is saying things like when you fast, right? So he's, he's not saying like, if you decide you want to fast, right? He's saying more like this is a regular when practice, you. Mm-hmm. something you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, so doing that on a regular basis and, and many, um, spiritual people throughout the ages have talked about having higher levels of, I guess you could say just spiritual activity and, um, yes. in life thought during times of fasting. Now, when we look at the effect of ketones and autophagy on the brain, scientifically, we can explain why somebody would have um, benefits. You know, their brain would have dramatic benefits from going through periods of fasting because of the ability to recycle old decaying cells in the brain and also ketones and their, their ability to stimulate um, genetic responses in the brain tissue as well as really throughout the whole body to um, to optimize certain neurotransmitters and to optimize uh, the development of ner- new nerve cells and those little gaps, like we've been talking about, synapses. Right, so, right. Yeah, there's a lot of power behind doing things like intermittent fasting and um, using ketones, getting your body keto-adapted so it can use ketones as primary energy source. Great, great. Now, in your book, you talk about two other things that I'd love to get in before we have to wrap up. One is, share with us one of your most advanced brain rejuvenation strategies other than ketogenic diet. (laughs) Yeah, so ketogenic diet for sure. Um, Obviously, we've been talking about that. Um, Intermittent fasting, you know, we've been talking about that as well. Okay. That's a really, really powerful, powerful approach. Um, other strategies, one is, is a very simple thing that people can do, which is grounding. So basically, hmm. we're around all of these different electromagnetic frequencies, um, these damaging electromagnetic frequencies. And really, they're damaging because our, we, as, a, as a species, we haven't had a long enough period of time to adapt to them. So like right here, I am you know, talking on my cell phone. Cell phones emitting an electromagnetic frequency that's new to my body. And so my ancestors didn't have to adapt to that. So my body's getting the stress of it and obviously going to try to adapt to it, but it's still stress. Same thing with the computer, same thing with microwaves, and radio waves, and all these kinds of things. Now, 
one electromagnetic frequency that humans have been around since the beginning of mankind is the Earth, the natural electromagnetic frequency that comes from the Earth. So being exposed and being connected, actually physically in touch with that, is a tremendous way to reduce electromagnetic frequency stress uh, on our body and around our body. And so the way that you do that, because the problem is that most of us, when we go outside, we're wearing rubber soles on our shoes or our sandals. And so those rubber soles block the natural electromagnetic frequencies from the earth. So if you take your shoes off and you go for a barefoot walk on grass, dirt, sand, even concrete, you'll get a healthy electromagnetic frequency from that, and that will help what's called ground the overall electromagnetic frequency of your body. Okay, so you've been, I've been exposed to the cell phone here. So if I go outside now for five minutes and um, get my feet on the grass or on the dirt or something like that, I'm going to help ground that and reduce the stress of that, um, the cell phone, right, of the computer, things like that. So that's one of the most powerful things. And most people, I mean, we can go through, our, we can go through a whole month without ever touching the earth, I mean, in, our, in today's society. And so we want to be connected. My wife and I, we take a barefoot walk at least once a day together. So we use it as family time. We're also moving our body, which is really powerful for the brain. We're, we have our boys in their stroller, and we are barefoot. And so even though we're on concrete for a lot of the walk, we're still getting a healthy electromagnetic frequency from the concrete. And then we also try to get off on grass, little grassy areas and, and whatnot as well. And we'll go in our backyard barefoot. Um, and that's powerful. You can even, you know, the, the old adage of like a tree hugger. Believe it or not, trees mm-hmm. have a really healthy electromagnetic frequency. And so actually being in a forest, right? There's something called foresting, right? Where you're actually out in a forest. So healthy for your electromagnetic frequency. Actually hugging a tree um, it's, is very powerful for your body's electromagnetic frequency. So doing these sorts of things that we may think, oh, wow, that's really like hippie-ish or, you know. Um, right. It's a little bit off, you know, off kilter or just, uh, you know, a little bit, quote, unquote, earthy um, is actually research and science is showing it's actually extremely beneficial for our body and our brains. So that's just another strategy along with the things we've been talking about. That's great. All right. One last one last question. Share with us the story of Ryan Pruett, your patient and his amazing brain recovery. Yeah, so Ryan came to me, and at the time, he had been given about six weeks to live um, from Emory University. So he had a stage four glioblastoma, which is a basically a very fast-growing brain cancer. And this, this sort of cancer is actually one of the fastest growing in terms of the amount of people being diagnosed with this sort of tumor, this glioblastoma, and um, basically given six weeks to live. And so... I, I told him what I could do. I said, hey, look, I have no idea. I have no idea, you know, uh, if, we, if we're going to be able to prolong that or not. But either way, no matter what you want to do, if you want to do conventional treatments or not, you've, we've got to start to, to help, help your body to heal itself, right? And the body has this innate ability to heal. And we just have to have faith in that, confidence in it, and, and move forward with that. And so we started him on a ketogenic diet. We also had him doing things like hyperbaric oxygen, 
Um, so we have hyperbaric oxygen chamber that we were using, a lot of advanced supplementation like high doses of fish oil and vitamin D and things I've been talking about, magnesium, um, mm-hmm. lots of antioxidants that we were putting into his system. We were also doing chiropractic adjustments to help get stress off of his nervous system and to help his body be able to, to um, have optimal neurological connections, meaning the brain sending messages down through the spinal cord, out the nerves, and then into all the different tissues of the body, we want to make sure that that was optimized. And so we're, we're getting stress off his nerve system with chiropractic care, getting his body moving. We had an infrared sauna and different things, different, a whole bunch of different modalities like that. And, um, you know, in a matter of about a year, Ryan's tumor, I mean, immediately started shrinking. In about a matter of about a year, it was completely gone. And uh, just an amazing testament to the body's ability to heal and regenerate. So just a a powerful, phenomenal story. And Ryan, again, he was given six weeks to live. Okay. He ended up living a little over two years. So his tumor did, unfortunately, did come back um, years later. He, um, Mm -hmm. He was actually building a home and he was redoing the home and it was exposed to a whole bunch of different glues and toxic agents and whatnot. Um, And I think that triggered it. And then he was under a very stressful circumstance because he and his family were living with family and while he was trying to build their home. And um, that basically, when it comes to disease processes, stress will really trigger it, stress and toxicity. So Mm -hmm. ended up uh, redeveloping and unfortunately we weren't able to get to it in time and do the sorts of treatments that needed to be done. And uh, he ended up passing away. But um, he told me to just keep, keep telling people about his story because he was given six weeks to live and he ended up making it over two years from that. And his, wow. his uh, family got a chance to have a lot of great moments with him. And really that was just a testament to really how the body is created to heal itself. And so since then I've had hundreds of different people with cancer come to my clinic or seek out you know, the kind of care that we give and, and we make no promises and we don't treat, quote unquote, treat cancer. That's really outside of the scope of our practice. We just help the body to remove interferences and heal itself. And we've helped so many people um, just go through the process and, and really have their life back. And so it's really been a blessing to be able to, to do that. And Ryan Pruitt was one of the, the first people we really truly saw this incredible miracle take place in. What an inspiring story, Dr. Jockers. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come out to give us your your great insights. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's such a pleasure and an honor, Rena. And uh, I I just really uh, appreciate your message and this sort of a podcast because the conversations you're having on this podcast are, I mean, they're world changing. And ultimately, for humanity to take the next leap we've got to change our healthcare system and we've really got to um, empower people to take back control of their health. And that's what you're doing. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate that. And for the rest of you, I think the message is clear. Get out there and hug a tree, dance in the rain, walk barefoot, don't snack all day, and (laughs) don't forget those awesome supplements. Stay smiling, stay joyful. Now you know the insights and the secrets and how to get there. I'll see you on the next podcast. 
That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.